Welcome to the Naked Innovation Podcast, where we feature leaders in enterprise innovation for honest discussions about what works, what doesn't, and what the future looks like. Each episode is brought to you by the team at Naked Ambition. At Naked Ambition, we teach the habits of innovation to corporate mavericks so they can lead their company into new territory. Hi, and welcome to this episode of Naked Innovation. This is your host, founder of Naked Ambition, Fiona Triaka. In this episode, I'm going to be chatting with Kate O'Keefe from Cisco. Kate is the senior director and one of the founders of the Cisco Hyper Innovation Living Labs, which is also known as Chill. Chill is helping Cisco redefine how ideas come into fruition, condensing up to two years of normal innovation in just two days. Chill brings together a handful of Cisco's customers, along with entrepreneurs, hackers and end users in a 48-hour lab, which is focused on a particular industry challenge. These groups collaborate, they build prototypes, they test them with users, and then they iterate up to 12 times before making a pitch for on-the-spot investment. Chill is actually the culmination of Kate's vision that today's hyper-innovation era requires both specific muscles and the capability to involve customers and startups in new and exciting ways. Since Chill's inception, a really impressive 75% of the projects that they've taken on have progressed to further stages, including ChillX, which is a process that creates startups from scratch. So more about who Kate is, she's a Melbourne native, now living in San Fran. She proved her entrepreneurial chops as a fashion designer by founding, building and exiting a successful shoe business called Cinderella Bella. She's the recipient of loads of industry awards and recognitions, including most recently the M Prize for Innovation Challenge, sponsored by Harvard Business Review and McKinsey. And she's also won a place on Fast Company's Most Creative People in Business 2016 list. I'm also super excited about this episode as Kate not only happens to be the founder of Chill, but she's also my cousin. So we really hope you enjoy this one. Firstly, thank you so much for being part of the Naked Innovation podcast. We are absolutely thrilled that you can be a part of this, you know, as your bio demonstrates, you've actually had a a really amazing career, but I think it's even more special to be doing this with a family member. So (laughs) this is really cool that we're able to pull this off. So thank you very much, Kate O'Keefe, for joining us today. My pleasure, Fiona. Thanks for inviting me great to be here and I work all day long in American accent so it's nice to hear and talk to someone from home. (laughs) Good. I'm glad we could bring that to you. Okay, so you are one of the founders of Chill, which is Cisco's hyper-innovation lab. It's an innovation initiative that, as far as we know, correct me if I'm wrong, is like absolutely nothing else that's out there. So, could you actually just start by telling us a little bit about Chill? What is it? How did this this idea come into being? Sure. So I've been at Cisco now for seven years. And so for those of you who may not be familiar, Cisco is a very large NASDAQ publicly traded company where it's considered old tech, if you like, because it was founded 30 years ago here in the Valley. And Cisco turns over about $70 billion a year in uh, networking and communications equipment 
software and security services. And I joined the company around seven years ago. I was working at the time. I had my own startup at the time, Cinderella Bella. I um, was in the shoe business. I was a fashion designer for all intents and purposes. Uh, I had also taken on what was originally a consulting role and turned into a full-time role leading innovation for Southeast Water, a water retailer based in the suburbs of Melbourne. I took on that role because Melbourne was in the midst of its worst drought in history and I wanted to make a contribution to that environmental crisis. And I found myself being quite hooked on the idea of uh, working on an innovation at scale. You know, when you're in a startup, uh, it's a little isolating and you think in terms of in much smaller terms, much more immediate personal terms than when I was at Southeast Water when I was thinking at scale, when I was thinking about making millions or tens of millions of dollars worth of difference. And I really sort of fell in love with that scale. And, and I remember speaking at a conference in Melbourne, an innovation conference in Melbourne about what was your business going to do when it stopped raining? So there we were in Melbourne dealing with this water crisis, begging our customers not to use our product whilst the government was demanding a higher and higher dividend, uh, which is a really fascinating conundrum to be a part of that conversation. And I was sharing at this innovation conference that the, there was a metaphor here, that there were lessons here that could be applied more broadly to all of us who are in successful companies that need to start thinking about well, what happens when it stops raining? What happens when my current cash cow collapses? Am I going to be able to make a transition? Am I going to be able to adapt to some of the digital transitions that are going on in so many industries? And there was someone from Cisco in that audience. And so I was hired into Singapore. So Cisco hired me, uh, but relocated me to Singapore. So I worked in Singapore for Cisco in an innovation role. So my, my role there was initially, sort of for the first three or four years, far more sort of employee innovation oriented. So I was far more focused on how do I create a culture of innovation in the business? How do I drive a cultural shift? How do I offer tools and build capabilities within the business so that we could drive innovation across that business? And I love that kind of work. I love working with engineers and it was only about sort of two, two and a half years ago, you know, I was already doing a lot of innovation in partnership with customers at that point as a result of my more employee innovation work. And it became apparent to me that a lot of the innovation that Cisco was looking to drive required entire industries to shift. So the kind of work that Cisco does which is about creating, if you like, the, the connectivity between industries, the mm -hmm. internet connectivity, the communication pathways, the IoT, Internet of Things, digital connectivity between industries, big data, our ability to make smarter decisions and machine learning. The more I thought about some of these trends, the more it became apparent to me that in order for us to be successful, we were going to need to help entire industries up-level and upshift their innovation conversation. And since Cisco is such a ubiquitous company, most large companies of the in the world have some Cisco footprint in them, and many are very deep strategic partners of Cisco. 
I was really able to think about being able to reach across an industry, touch different parts of it, and have them buy into a disruptive innovation conversation or a disruptive innovation process. So, so CHILL stands for Cisco Hyper Innovation Living Lab, and the Living Lab is a process that we have. And that process is focused on putting the living back into the lab environment, if you like. I mean, I live at a massive technology company. And we have literally hundreds of rather dead labs that are full of hardware and are full of computers. And our process is all about bringing Cisco's largest customers into the innovation process as an equal partner, not as an attendee, as an equal shareholder, if you like, who was bought into joining this process. And our customers' customers are physically there in the process. We have this this concept in our world called massive inclusion. In order to drive disruptive innovation, we believe that everybody from your front line, if we're doing a lab about cancer care, everybody from the cancer patient and their caregiver all the way to the CEO of the healthcare network, if that's the person that is needed in order to make an innovation, a disruptive innovation decision, they need to physically be in the room. You know, when we're dealing with multiple companies, if we're thinking across industries, the idea of coming up with a great idea or coming up with a great concept and then trying to shop it around to all the different executive stakeholders and sponsors within all these different organizations is clearly ridiculous. You'll clearly never make enough progress mm-hmm. to get anywhere. And so we have this process where we, we're deeply inclusive of um, not just our own stakeholders, but I need to be there at the Cisco side, but our customers and our customers' customers. So that's probably what, you know, some of the biggest differences about the work that we do. Some of the other pieces are um, we obviously create a lot of joint projects and a lot of joint initiatives, sell-through kind of ideas and channel kind of ideas, but we also create startups from scratch as an outcome from a living lab. There's been a startup created in, we've run four labs so far, and there is currently a startup running with a CEO out of the last two that we've created. These are businesses that did not exist before the living lab, where we have funded and recruited founding teams that have been chosen specifically because of their relevance to the topic area. And we're helping that business stand up not just Cisco, but Cisco and one of Cisco's partners. So we have a a program called ChillX, which kind of leverages a lot of the learning from the chill environment and helps create startups in that way. So a lot of the kind of the rapid customer exposure, a lot of the rapid prototyping, a lot of those pieces coupled with some of the muscles that Cisco can bring. Cisco has a $2.2 billion venture capital fund actually the third largest strategic investor here in the Valley. So we've got this very special muscle that we can help startups be created from scratch as part of the work that we do. So another part of the work that we do that's, that's a little unusual. That's incredibly exciting. I think if you, I mean, you're four labs in, you've got a successful startup operating. And as you said, you've got this sort of funding behind you. And it's been running now for, is it two years? Yeah. How long? Two years. Yeah. So can we take a step back? 
how did you even it all makes sense now two years in but how did you get (laughs) buy-in for something this ambitious back when this was just a seed of an idea because of course it it, yeah it all makes perfect sense now and you had some amazing success and you know you've, you've proven that concept obviously can you tell us about that that initial kind of kickoff phase and and how you went about yeah organizing and coordinating and getting, <laughs> getting your stakeholders to actually believe in this thing before yeah. they give you, yeah, the freedom to do it. Yeah. So, I mean, some of it's kind of a strategic conversation and some of it's a very personal conversation for me as a leader. And probably the transition for me as a leader had the biggest impact on my ability to get the buy-in here. There came a time in my career about two and a half years ago that I realized I had been asking for permission rather than just taking it. I don't know if that was because I'm a women, woman leader or I'm a woman leader in the Valley. You probably heard some of the terrible press that we've had <laughs> over here in Silicon Valley recently for how women leaders are treated. But wherever it came from, I had always been taught to ask permission and find mm. the right leadership and get that leader's explicit permission for the runway I was taking. And around two, two and a half years ago, I realized I didn't need to ask anymore. And in fact, most of the people I was asking permission of were ill-equipped or unqualified to assess whether this decision was the right decision for Cisco, that I was actually better placed, more of an expert, closer to customers, more able to see that this was the right decision for us to make. And so that was a huge part of the change is that I stopped asking um, and started taking. The other part of it was from like a strategic, tactical, practical way that I got the permission is that I actually ran a pilot version of what I wanted. I, I ran a living lab. It was a little different. I didn't charge the customers for coming, but I did Mm -hmm. bring senior important customers. I had Costco. I had Nike. I had Visa. And I had Lowe's, the large US-based hardware store, the equivalent of the Mm. Bunnings or something like that. So I had those customers present in the room. I included all the relevant Cisco leadership, including half the people reported directly to the CEO physically in the room in order for them to understand what I was doing. And when so they that saw massive it, inclusion idea from the beginning. When they, yep. Yeah. So they had to see it. They had to see the prototypes. They had to see the end users. They had to see the customer response. I had to show it to them. And so I didn't ask permission to do that. I put it on the calendar. You know, I rolled the dice. I sunk most of my budget on it and I showed it to them. And all they could say afterwards was, how many of these can you do? How far can we take these? Mm. Can you pivot and do something like this in our core business? So, yeah. So, that was, I guess, the tactical way that I was able to drum up, like, direct support and buy-in for the work. Get them in the room. I want to come back to that in a moment. Maybe your advice for people who find this concept really exciting or aspects of this really exciting and want to do some of it themselves and how they might do it. But can we go a bit deeper into the chill process itself? 
So yeah. the methods that you use over those days, the kind of, so you mentioned there, customers didn't pay for that first pilot, the first prototype, but they're obviously paying to be a part of this now. So you've kind yeah. of generated that demand. Yeah. And then even we've, we've heard about one startup that is fully operational and profitable at the moment. And then what are some of the other, what are some of the other companies that have come out of it? Yeah. So just to sort of chunk down your question a little bit. What do you want me to, (laughs) what can I answer? Let's start with the process. process? Yeah, let's go with the process. Yeah. So, and if folks are interested in going a clip deeper, there is a Harvard Business Review article from November where they spent a year and a half looking at this process kind of before and after and how the process developed it gets right into the nitty-gritty of things like intellectual property and other pieces. So they take a look at the November edition of, of Harvard Business Review. It's available online. They'll find the title of the piece, which I'm the co-author of, is multi-party innovation that actually works. It's a deep compliment to me, really. I was <laughs> very pleased with the title that they chose. So that does provide a lot of a click down. But if I'm sort of to touch on it at a high level... The the chill process is really about handling most of the strategic and stakeholder preparation for a disruptive innovation process before the process starts. So customers do buy in to be part of a living lab. They invest $200,000 to be part of the conversation. Before any outcomes come out of the lab, um, they've already invested $200,000 to be part of it. And that buys them in equal ownership of the intellectual property that's developed, in equal access to the prototypes that are developed, and goes a little way to, I guess, frame some of my own investment in creating something like this. Because the Living Lab itself, that process of massive inclusion, creates something of a circus. You know, in, in the room within a Living Lab environment during the actual 48 hours that it takes place, we usually have somewhere between 100 and 140 people in the room. So it does end up being quite a production. So if we go back in time from when the lab happens, so if I was to take an example, for instance, we ran a living lab about securing the digitized supply chain powered by the blockchain in May of this year. And I had probably started signaling to the marketplace through interviews like this and through press and through appearances and speeches that I make, I had probably started signaling to the marketplace for a good nine months before that lab that this was a topic we were looking, taking interest Mm. in. And so I start to signal and then I start to hear some noise back. You know, I start to hear folks getting excited about the topic. And when we start the topic for our lab focused on the blockchain, we started with that. We think we're going to do something focused on blockchain, business value out of blockchain. And it was actually through the process of kind of signaling to the marketplace, this is something that interests us. We think there's something really disruptive here for our own business. And the kinds of companies that would come back to us that were motivated to join that dialogue and how they saw the technology, that process in itself is what kind of narrowed the topic area. And it's actually quite mm-hmm. important to point out that I don't start with, this is my problem zone. This is the problem zone as it applies to Cisco. And do you want to come to my thing? 
it's really important to point out we don't start that way. We start off with, you know, here is a, a huge battlefield where we think there could be joint value across a few different industries. How does that problem show up for you? And I look for that narrow tranche, that narrow overlap on the Venn diagram of their interest and mine. I'm looking for what is that shared value likely to be? And so I started off with something really broad like blockchain. We spoke to a lot of banks and a lot of banks were really fired up about it. But where I started to get more excited was when different kinds of companies got fired up and joined. We had DB Schenker, the large global logistics and outsourced warehouse provider. Citibank joined and they saw this problem from a very specific perspective. You know, when, when people mark up the customs paperwork, when you're trying to clear a border, city has to retain the money available for that mucked up paperwork for 10 years. It has to be on hand and available. So mm-hmm. they're looking to address that kind of problem and they were thinking about things like customs and border crossings, D.B. Schenker, very large logistics provider, and Cisco has its own $70 billion supply chain to manage and maintain so we went from really broad to starting to narrow to what is that shared zone where there mm. could be really disruptive interests and opportunities for those three companies. And then once that was in place, Intel became a natural addition. Cisco is Intel's largest customer. And so they were a participant in our supply chain. They're also a giant in IoT and a giant in some of the technologies where I think there could be answers to some of these pieces. Uh, And then the final addition to the cohort was GE, uh, who likewise have a huge, even bigger supply chain than we do to worry about, had technologies in this space already, and also a digital giant where I thought we could have some similar thinking to how we might solve some of these problems. So Mm. that's how the cohort comes together. And the point of... um, having these customers buy into the process, it's a couple of things. Sorry, so just so I'm clear there, when you get the DB Shankers, the cities in the beginning, and you've yeah. identified that shared value, then are yeah. you, your step was then, okay, I think GE are the next yeah. piece of this puzzle, and then you approach yeah. them or? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yep. That's how, yeah. Brilliant. I mean, you know, I mean. So you're these- building it because it's. It's as much about the relationship and the learning between these companies Completely, the output. Is that right? Completely. Yep. Completely. It's about mm. curating a joint mm. innovation exercise with those who have different muscles to bring to the dialogue. Yeah. And they certainly get at least as much out of, I would certainly hope, out of working with each other as they do out of working with Cisco. Mm. It's really important I believe, to the success of the process, that these companies feel like equal shareholders in the outcome. The minute someone feels like Kate and the Chill team are providing an outsourced innovation function or an outsourced Mm. an innovation as a service or I've paid my 200 grand so Cisco is on the hook to cough up innovation for us, then I've lost. I've lost Mm. that sense of shared ownership, of genuine partnership, of shared opportunities being sought. And so we definitely frame up that this is a a peer relationship between giants 
and that you know we continue to invest shoulder to shoulder in each of the steps that we take, um, mm. and that the that just as we we buy into the creation of the living lab process, in the when the outcomes come through, we similarly make a decision about how much it's going to cost to take the next step and then split it all down the middle in order for everybody to continue their participation. So it's staying on that, the point you've made about each of those organisations really bringing something to the table. Of those 140 people in the room, what are the sort of skill sets? What kind of people would they send to something yeah. like this? Or yeah. what do you ask from them as well? You know, you've got yeah. to have the, those. Or are you upskilling them as you go? What's that sort of? Yeah, so the living lab process itself takes 48 hours. But before then, we've done a lot of work to prepare four teams. The first and most important group we call the concepting team. And there are usually around five concepting teams who are senior executives from each of the participating organizations. And the teams are mixed. So for our blockchain lab, we had... On one team, we had the head of supply chain for Cisco, the head of supply chain for Intel. We had the CIO of D.B. Schenker, and we had the head of trade finance for Citibank. So you're talking about an incredibly senior group of folks who have budgetary responsibility to solve these problems and have the delegated authority to create teams and move forward to solve some of those problems. So to be honest, it's probably a lot of the secret source to how Chill works is that we take very senior executives and through a fairly elaborate process, we turn them into designers for a couple of days through a lot of support from through of end user exposure from my team, spending a lot of time with end users who are breaking their ideas and not liking them and sometimes loving mm-hmm. them. And through the creation of prototypes, those senior executives take on a completely new understanding of the problem. They also learn a ton from each other. So there's an enormous mm-hmm. amount of richness and disruption inherent in the diversity of the perspectives from that team. Mm-hmm. If you think so if somebody from Intel thinks about a problem completely differently to how somebody from Citibank thinks about a problem. And bringing those two together and thinking about how those two completely different perspectives can coalesce around solving a customer problem or an end user's problem is where a lot of the magic happens. Mm. So, th- so the first group are the, uh, the concepting teams. And again, the curation of who they are um, how bored in they are to the process? Do they care about this problem? Do they really want to solve this problem? Do they have the resources to solve this problem? Is a lot of what goes into the selection process of who in that large organization should be on a team. So that's the first group. The second group that we have is called the build team. And that's a group of about 20 programmers, builders, carpenters, 3D printers, you name it, the kinds of people that I need to be able to, within an hour, build, design, and prepare prototypes to order to these teams. 
And so most of those folks come from Cisco. A lot of these folks come from beyond uh, are freelancers that we find from across the valley. Some of them come from the customers that we include in a lab. But that's an incredibly important role. And what we find within the chill process is that the more deeply connected the concepting team feels to the prototyping team, the easier it is for them to think this way and to think mm-hmm. in three dimensions. So, you know, I make... I make jokes about how in the innovation business, we can be accused of being the beanbag brigade or the (laughs) Sharpie pen brigade or the post-it note brigade. And to be honest, it's been really important for us in the living lab environment to try and keep people away from sticky notes and the Mm -hmm. written word and talking too much that we find the quicker the team shuts up and builds something, the more successful they are. And once a team has found itself being happy, peaceful, and successful, building on each other's post-it notes, it can be very hard for them to divorce themselves from those sticky notes and start Mm. prototyping something. Mm -hmm. So we give them 90 minutes from when they arrive to when they meet their first round of end users. Wow. Send them an set them an almost impossible <laughs> deadline. They are literally, so they have dinner the night before, that's when the 48 hours start. And then the next morning at 9 a.m., they arrive and they've got an hour and a half before their first group of end users arrive. And it really helps them get out of familiar understanding. Oh, this is a workshop. I know how this works. I'm going to run a sticky mm. notes and then I'm going to get a colored dot and I'm going to pick my favorite and and what or I'm going to find, be in listening mode for the first half day and I'm going to be learning all about this, yep. Yeah, and yeah. exactly right. And we also find that, I mean, no one in their right mind would bring together such a senior group of people on the one team. I mean, there's a lot of egos on these teams. You know, <laughs> we deliberately pick people who are peers so they can't resort to pulling rank in order to solve some of these problems is pulling rank is exactly how we get to the kind of thinking we've always had. And so, yeah, getting the teams really quickly into build mode is one of the ways that we overcome that and take people away from thinking how they traditionally have. So that's the second team, the build team. The third team mm. is the insights team. And that's a mix of market research type people. And it's mm-hmm. also where all the end users sit. So we will have 40 to 60 end users of the topic zone, on-site, present, and available at a moment's notice for the whole time. Mm. So for those two days, we physically have dozens and dozens of relevant target audience, target market members available to be pulled in to settle arguments, disputes. Yes, I would use that. No, I wouldn't use that. No, I don't know how to use this. I don't know where this goes. I don't know how it works and I don't know how I would apply it. And so that's a really important part of our process. Now, sometimes it's easy. When we did a living lab that was about transforming the patient experience of cancer care, we Mm. knew we needed cancer patients, cancer doctors and cancer nurses. Yeah. When we did a living lab about supply chains, it was really hard. I needed people who made deliveries. I needed people who took deliveries. I needed customs people. I needed government affairs people. I needed fleet managers. I needed factory foremen. 
it, yeah, I needed insurance people. I needed, yeah, it was tough, but crucial because I don't, I don't dictate we are going to solve a problem. We're going to create a product for the junior madam aged seven to nine in the Australian market because I, I don't dictate the exact problem we're solving. I, I can't usually determine, often determine exactly who the end users are for the problem mm. that we'll solve. Mm. So I have to recruit broadly to make sure we have enough experts that will be relevant to the conversations that these executives choose to have. So that's the third mm-hmm. team. The fourth team doesn't arrive until 5 p.m. on the second day, and they are the investor group. So we end the process with a pitch. And it's a little ironic because usually we have such senior people on the team themselves. They don't actually need anybody's permission or money in order to make mm-hmm. their, their innovation a success. But we often find that whenever you're doing innovation that involves other corporations, other companies, you need the kind of air coverage sponsorship support that makes the process easier, that makes your, the company understand that these kinds of innovations are coming down the pipe, that it's had the blessing, it's had the blessing of our CEO or our CFO or our CSO, whoever it is that needs to be involved in order for this to be successful. So they're the last group who are involved and they, they raise their paddle and if they like, just like an auction, and if they like yeah. the, the pitch, they'll raise their paddle and say, I'm in. And, <laughs> and, if and they, they've already spent their 200K, haven't they? That's already they have. fair. This is fresh yeah. dollars. This is fresh dollars. Oh, okay. Wow. Yep. This is fresh dollars that they're committing. And so they'll either raise a paddle to say, I'm in, which means, yeah, I want to be part of what drives this and I'm, I want to be a sponsor I want to. I may not agree with the exact ask that the team has framed up, but I'm certainly, I'm certainly comfortable making a contribution to their success. Um, we also have another side to the paddle. They can, they can raise a paddle that says, "Let's talk," um, which means maybe I'm in if you can answer my questions appropriately, or you can completely change what you want to do about this, or whatever, whatever. Or they don't raise a paddle at all, which means this one isn't for me. But usually, each co- company will put forward a number of different executives that are you know, briefed and aware that this is the pitch and this is what they'll be asked to do and this is what the next steps are. And do you keep carrying that afterwards? Is it your responsibility to continue to coordinate, you know, if you've got all different execs from all different companies, that's when it moves into Chillex, is it? Well, yeah, so Chillex is when we, we were in startup creation mode. And to be honest, when that happens, mm. it's the easiest because Chillex yeah. happens in an incubator and it's separate from us and we're hiring a founding team. And other than, you know, the investment support or the guidance or the mentorship, um, that's the easiest way to progress an idea. It sounds like the most complicated, but because it's external to any one company, it can be the mm-hmm. easiest to, to push ahead. When it's a joint project, that's when it's tougher. So there's an example of a an opportunity that came out of the blockchain lab and in order to be successful, we're going to have to test a whole lot of different startup technology in a particular space. And so we're doing sort of three or four different POCs with different startups with competing technology mm. in, a, in a space. And, you know, it involves mining and minerals. We need to find a mine. We need to get their buy-in <laughs> to let us test all this kit on them and what they're doing. And, yeah, it's a lot of work. And, and, and so mm. my team... Our hope is that 
you know, each of these corporations will usually have appointed a co-pilot to work with us who owns the chill relationship and is plugged in enough to the topic that they want to drive outcomes with us. And so usually by the time it comes time for outcomes, we've done so much work putting the lab together in partnership that putting a POC together in partnership or a joint project is easier and is less Mm -hmm. like Kate's job and more like a shared responsibility that we have. That's certainly my hope. Mm -hmm. At the scale it's at is obviously, as we said at the top, it's like nothing that is out there. Um, and it's pretty spectacular. If there are people that are listening to this that are really inspired by it and there are sort of elements of what you've spoken about that they're like, I'd just love to try, you know, even a tiny version of this, how would you do it if you didn't have your Cisco budget? If we're talking about pulling something like this together for 50 grand, what are the essential elements? <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, the first thing I want to frame up is that I'm not doing a large complex. I'm not doing it the hard way because I like complexity. I'm mm. doing it this way because the kind of innovation I'm committed to delivering, big, disruptive, billion-dollar, industry-shaping concepts, take a lot of buy-in, mm. take a lot of companies to move at once. It takes a lot to pull that off. And in my experience, getting a lot of that buy-in up front, doing a lot of social engineering about who's going to be there and what they care about, having them invest in the process so that I know that the people are in really bleed for the outcome and they want their seat at that table and they don't want their competitor to have their seat at that table. When I do all of these pieces because I think that's the way to go to get me the kinds of outcomes that I want. So, you know, I'm, I'm not building in the complexity to be fancy. I'm, I'm building no, in no. the complexity. No, no. I think that's, that's where I, yeah. But, so, I mean, um, the question maybe, is it even possible, you know, to do, like, continue? Sorry. Yeah, so there's certainly bits of this that I imagine would be vital to anybody that is looking to deliver an environment of innovation within their corporation. Um, Probably the most important for us is the concept of doing as a form of learning. So everything that we do in a lab environment, you know, Mm -hmm. building something rapidly, putting something in front of an end user within an hour and a half. I mean, the reason we get such good sponsorship and support for post-lab projects is because we chunk down these asks so that people are raising their paddle for like 40 grand not $4 million. Mm. And so what is the minimum amount we can do, learn, put it in front of a customer and pivot and then keep going? And it's probably the most important principle that sits behind this work that we do is to stop building PowerPoint decks about your innovation projects, especially if they have a slide. It's usually about slide four that lists all the assumptions that have been made in the production of this deck. Almost Mm. all of those assumptions are probably wrong. Mm. Very few (laughs) of them will have actually been held up to genuine scrutiny. We went out and we asked 40 of our customers and they said this. Usually it'll be there's a study that happened in three years ago from a similar market about a different product 
and we think the question was similar, we cross our fingers because this along with these other 12 assumptions are all pretty big ifs for the leap we're asking you to take. And then often at the end of that deck for your innovation, there's an ask for a lot of money. There's an ask Mm -hmm. for that's a real leap of faith and there's a direct correlation to how long it takes you to get a bundle of money and how much you ask for. If you really want to go somewhere, ask for 20 grand now and tell them mm-hmm. you'll be back in 30 days to ask them for another 20. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know? I mean, sooner or later, you know, you, you'll need like primary capabilities within your team mm-hmm. in order to generate that kind of metabolism. But in my experience, you know, keeping your innovation metabolism at a level your company can chew and swallow and expose to end users. Your experiment should be as simple as we're going to get an answer to this question. This is the next question that needs to be answered Mm. in order for us to keep moving. Mm. And the way you get an answer to that question may not have anything to do with the development of a product. So, you know, you you might get an answer to that question through role play. You might get that answer to that question by sitting in a, in a doctor's waiting room and asking the miserable patients that are bored and looking mm-hmm. to talk to somebody to pass the time. Yeah, that's probably a fundamental principle, which doesn't matter what your budget is. I have a substantial budget, and that kind of thinking is the backbone of the work that I do. Even with the budget that I have to devote to mm-hmm. innovation, we chunk down our, our asks in this way not because I'm cheap and I can't afford to invest properly, but because I really believe this is the only way to move. Mm-hmm. Um, and as long as corporations ask questions and outsource the answer to those questions to consulting companies like McKinsey and others, we are stripping ourselves of the ability to bring that knowledge and what's behind those innovations into our own corporations. Mm. I think that's really good advice because that is the element as you're saying that's that's not where you're spending the money on building that next prototype, like creating a proof of concept, getting a small investment and then taking it to the next level. That's something that anybody can do on any budget. Yeah. Which is exciting. To be honest, that principle can sit behind you in your career regardless of whether you're even in the innovation game. Yeah. That... The whole process of, you know, what's my assumption sitting behind this? How can I test this? How quickly can I get it in front of an end user? Who is my end yeah. user? I'm not going to lie. You know, in a lot of the cases for a lot of these large companies, when I expose them into a real end user, you know, when they're in a living lab environment and I brought in cancer patients to talk to them about how their technology touched their lives, it was a real shock for a yeah, lot of people. the first time they'd done it. Yeah. It's the first time they'd seen it. I remember when I first did a living lab in retail, I had some dad walked in with a two-year-old on each hip and one of my executives wanted to help give him directions to wherever he needed to go because it sure as hell couldn't Mm. have been here because we don't have conversations that have toddlers in the middle of them. But we were talking about retail and transforming retail, so that's why he'd been invited. So, you know, for a lot of people, it's a real shock to get that close to end users and it's where all of the richness, the way we should be playing is hiding. Brilliant. Can we let's that, that actually leads us well onto something another piece I was interested in. You know, a lot of our clients are at the beginning of their innovation journey and yeah. 
the task of, I guess, what your role was back when you were at Melbourne Water, which was around that. How do we create a culture of innovation? What are the tools that we need? What level of capability? Who do we upskill? These are kind of the questions that we're helping them tackle every day. What do you think are the most critical elements to drive innovation in an organisation from your Cisco experience or other companies or even from... I mean, look, you know, I mean, I think I've touched on some of them already. You know, a lot of people think end users, customers, giving the access to customers is the realm of the marketing department. And of all the parts of Cisco that I work with a lot, I work next to not at all with our marketing department. That's not because they're not wonderful people, but because I believe everybody needs to have access, interaction, an understanding of who the end users are of the problem that they're trying to solve. And the minute it becomes the realm of the marketing department or separate from you, you become separate from your capacity to derive value from what you know of them. I also think how you talk to your end user customers is really critical. In my experience, the only way to effectively talk to an end user or a customer is by putting a prototype in front of them and shutting up. So the opposite to a focus group the opposite to sending it off to marketing and have them tell you whether or not it's worthwhile. Don't ever ask an end user what they think about something before you've put something in front of them that allows them to tangibly experience the product or service that you're looking to drive. So that's Mm. really, really important. So I think those are some of the pieces. I would certainly say that, you know, if you're at the start of your innovation journey and building muscle for innovation, For a very long time, I thought you could not be successful at big disruptive innovation until your company was successful at metabolizing small incremental innovation. And I certainly think that part of that is true, uh, that you need both muscles. And I believe that, you know, it's a mistake to think that incremental innovation isn't important. It really, really is. And your company having a comfort for that kind of change and adaptation and celebrating those that achieve it is really, really important. But I do believe it's really important as innovation leaders to curate a balanced portfolio of the incremental innovations that we support and the big disruptive innovations that we support because we need both to sustain the life cycle and this capability journey that you're on. You need quick wins. You need people to understand the capabilities that you're making available to them you need good stories. And at the end of one or two years, you need some really big, chunky wins to mm. point to that demonstrate that you wouldn't have gotten to this place, this place of excellence and success without your contribution. So mm-hmm. I believe that there is a need to create a portfolio of the stories that you're going to want to tell and some of them will need to be immediate and some of them will need to be disruptive. Certainly one of the best pivots that I made was to focus on direct customer inclusion in our, in our innovation process that it's very hard to argue with me when I have customer investment, customer involvement, when customers are telling my leadership about the work that we're doing and they hear about it first from the customer before even hearing about it from me. So Mm -hmm. that was certainly really important in terms of, you know, once that started happening, that started being part of 
the conversations we were able to have with customers. And the wild thing is, in a really big company like mine, it's often easier and quicker to do things with a customer than it is to do with another department. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I think that was a really important pivot that we made. And that is not one that needs a lot of scale. I mean, if I was talking to a CEO of a company about Mm. what was the one thing, if I was you, I would do to completely change the game when it came to you as an innovator, probably the first thing I would say would be to create a venture capital portfolio for the company. So take Mm -hmm. some of your balance sheet cash and invest it in fast growth companies, in new technologies. It'll help you see around corners. It'll change your company's comfort with risk and and awareness of risk. When you start thinking about, you know, a balanced portfolio of an investment and being comfortable that not every investment you make in your portfolio will be a success, then uh, these are huge strides in raising your organization, your board, your senior leadership's level of IQ of what it takes to drive a a real culture of innovation within an organization. And it's something Mm. that's often very profitable and lucrative for an organization. Well, I get suspicious. Mm. The more profitable and lucrative your strategic investment portfolio is, often the less strategic value you're getting out of it. So the, the more successful it is, probably the safer it is. But certainly in and of itself, it'll make an enormous difference to the kinds of, mm. you know, if you think about your investment portfolio as buying bonds and stocks and options, where bonds are the things that your core business really needs to be innovating around, stocks are the pieces that you should be planfully developing, using your innovation capabilities to develop bringing the outside in and innovating on with your customers and options are the areas that are over the horizon that you want to keep an eye on, you want to learn from and making Mm -hmm. some investments in startups or making some investments in others that are are playing in that space so that you can learn and you can begin to understand, you know, what your company's role will be in that space. So I think balancing how you think about your innovation portfolios in the same way you think about all your other investments, I think is important. And definitely that venture capital portfolio would go some way towards helping them build both of those muscles, as you say. So it's doing that incremental work, but actually then having the funds to do, to have the, the bigger impact pieces that are going to drive. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly, it's certainly um, one of the challenges that folks in innovation roles play is that they're constantly hunting for operational funds to fund the kinds of projects that more R&D and growth-based. So by their nature, they should really be funded off the balance sheet. You know, yeah. your, your research and development budget is usually balance sheet driven, and yet your innovation budget is almost invariably operationally driven. Yeah. And so you're almost hamstringing your innovators out of the gate. Because out of the gate, you're saying you've got to go cap in hand to people whose job it is to say no to people who come to them with their yeah. cap in hand <laughs> and invest yeah. in your stuff. And mm. in that way, we incentivize people to slam the door in the faces of people whose job it is to drive innovation. Mm. So we, we strategically 
We set up an architecture for innovation capabilities to fail, and most of them do. And so finding a way that you can structure how innovations are funded in a way that doesn't involve that kind of dilemma where you are basically, for a long time it was my job to sell people's innovations to parts of the business that were reluctant to buy and the engineers were ill-equipped to sell to. Mm. And you should be getting far more strategic value from your innovation function than that. Yeah, to get the architecture right from the beginning. Do you hear sort of from your Silicon Valley experience more broadly, any sort of major success or failure stories that you think we can learn from over here? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, the Valley is a funny place. You know, if there's any real difference culturally that you notice when you come here immediately, like in your first Mm. week of hanging out here, there's a couple of things that struck me and strike everybody. When someone, when there's, when there's a newcomer to the area, I always love having this conversation because there's always two things that seem to hit everybody in the same way. One is everybody here has a startup. Everybody here has something to sell. Everybody here is hustling for their side hustle or their startup. And it's so ubiquitous that it's fine. There's, in Australia, you know, when there's a little bit of a cringe, there's a little bit of shame to some degree to always be hustling for your startup. Mm. In here, it's completely normal to always be closing, always be pitching. And so that kind of ubiquitous, everyone's hustling for their startup, means that everybody is used to helping everybody who has a startup. Mm. And it was one of the big things I noticed when I got here is that, Everybody wants to connect you to everybody else. Everybody knows someone you should know that is relevant to your side hustle or your startup or what it is you're trying to Mm. found. And everybody wants to connect you to the people they know who are relevant to the space. It's a really beautiful kind of pay it forward. Everyone's been there here. Everyone's done it. Everyone's failed. And everyone's been in pitch mode. So because of that, universal experience everybody knows you need to meet people and because of that universal experience everyone knows people that you can pitch things to or that are relevant or who help or who can connect you to designers or whatever else it is that you need Mm -hmm. so that kind of ubiquity of the hustle that is over here and everybody being happy to connect you to people is is one of the first things that you notice when you're here The second is the comfort with failure. Over Mm. here, you you really, you're not anybody unless you failed at something. And that was just a big shock to me, how easily people are like, you know, I'm, I failed. I did, I did miserably. I, I, I was too soon. I was too late. I ran out of money. I ran out of cash. It's completely okay to frame that up here. It's completely okay to say, and I lost interest or the business model failed or people don't feel the need to sugarcoat it or reframe it or tell it differently. Yeah, I, um, as part of my work, you know, when I was talking about these concepting teams, we actually put these folks we call distinguished entrepreneurs on this team. 
on each team. And that person is a startup entrepreneur who has either been acquired and is sort of between engagements or has failed or is otherwise kind of um, a candidate to be the CEO of a startup that that team might create together. And in fact, the two startups that we have uh, operating now, their CEOs were both on the team on the day in the lab. So we found this to be really important. But I can't imagine being able to find six entrepreneurs between engagements, having failed at something or lying around because they'd been acquired. I can't imagine being able to find that talent sort of thick on the ground back home, whereas here, mm-hmm. you know, there's such a community of comfort with failure, comfort telling people I'm looking to get out, you know, I'm failed at this, that it's a, you're able to find those connections and there's such comfort with failure that it doesn't mean that your next venture won't be funded because you failed at your last. Mm. So the, the willingness to help and the comfort with failure are the two biggest things that are quite different mm. over here. So that startup culture that, that feeds into corporate innovation, I suppose, and maybe because our startup culture is not quite as well established, there's a few groups now that are trying to make the connection between the two sides, but it's still it's still pretty immature. Yeah. I mean, yeah. look, a lot of these are human qualities. You know, a lot mm. of these go really deep. So whether or not I feel comfortable telling you that the last thing I did was a failure or whether or not when you tell me about what you're doing, I think that's totally appropriate for you to pitch your thing to me and whether or not mm. I'm going to take the time to try and pay it forward and, and give you a, a list of three people that are in my network that I think could make you succeed. I mean, these are big sort of primary human cultural yeah. things. And yep. so I'm sure that the flavor of startup culture that builds up in Australia will look and feel and smell like something that is unique to Australia and won't necessarily mm look and feel and smell like it does here. And we'll find the alchemy that aligns to some of those personal human personality traits that are so special about the Australian culture will start being the centrepiece for how we build up the startup culture. So I think when Mm. we get those two pieces of alignment, then that's when that kind of, this kind of environment will flourish. I am. So I'm just really conscious of time. Have you got time for just two more questions? Yeah, sure. Yeah. We're family after all. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I mentioned that. I think I said family, but, yeah, for listeners, Kate is my first cousin. Lovely Kate. What do you think? Anyone who's really serious, so from the C-suite right down to entrepreneurs that really are passionate about innovation, want to be driving innovation in their organisations, what do they need to be reading or watching? Yeah, I'm not a magnificent example of this. I have a boss here at Cisco and he is one of the people who epitomizes leaders must be readers and so he churns through a couple of books a week and I have to admit that I'm not a huge reader and I'm much more likely to learn by doing than by reading. So, I mean, there are a couple of books that I look to There's one I'm reading at the moment 
called Play Bigger, mm-hmm. which is about uh, creating categories that rather than thinking about creating your next product, how can you think about creating a category? You know, the guy that made the five-hour energy shot didn't look to make a better energy drink. He looked to create the category of the energy shot and that mm-hmm. allowed him to create a monopoly. So, yeah, I mean, I think unbinding the shackles of your thinking to allow yourself to focus on thinking bigger, framing things in a bigger way is pretty central to how I think about things. Yeah. Okay, let's go because I think this feeds into another one because I just mentioned entrepreneurs, but I think you you are an amazing example of an entrepreneur. Certainly, you know, you started your corporate career or you started your career as an entrepreneur and then became an entrepreneur. What advice have you got for those people that are um, not necessarily in a leadership position, maybe don't have the budget, but do have the drive and oftentimes are probably closer to the problem or the opportunity. Yeah. What, yeah, and, and they might be trying to drive things without the support of their organisation. What's your personal advice to them to keep going? Yeah, so I, I guess it would it, be a couple of things. I mean, the first would be to start by designing the role you should be doing that's perfect for you. Almost without exception in my career, I can think of two pretty short-lived examples, almost without exception in my career, I had a job description that I wrote, that I made for me, that I designed for me and that I pitched and I framed up and I decided needed to be that way um, Mm. and then couldn't let it be any other way. So certainly being planful about designing what you want to do and how your role makes sense to you has been a really important part of how I've made myself successful is in the minute you start your job, you have better data than whoever gave it to you about what that job needs to be. You have Mm. better information about what is needed to be successful, what those customers need, what those end users need, how you need to, to get things done. And I think uh, owning that truth that you are better qualified the minute you start to frame up what will make you successful in that role is the best way for you to be successful. Redefine what it means to be a product manager in your organization. Redefine what innovation means in your organization to be end user and prototype focus and learning focus. Mm. So, yeah, I think that's a good place to start. Certainly in terms of... You know, good advice that I've given, been given, one of them was to stop asking for permission. At a certain level of your career, yeah, asking for permission is giving people who are probably less well-informed than you are the power to decide what you're doing. And you're probably better informed, better able to make the call, and you would probably be remiss in your responsibilities to hand that decision over to others and in most cases, people are relieved to not have to make it. People are relieved to not have to take that decision from you. So, yeah, I think that's part of a lot of the illusions about innovation is that I need sponsorship, I need support, and I need this person's permission. And uh, in a lot of cases, collaboration is far better than asking for permission. Mm. You know, my name's Kate. I run a function within Cisco called Chill. We are a capability that 
is a catalyst for innovators across Cisco and helps them connect with customers and connect with prototypes. And I want to help you get where you're going. And suddenly you have a fierce ally and a supporter and a collaborator, which is much more powerful than a sponsor, if that makes sense. Mm, Yeah, I love that. Turn your sponsors into collaborators. So my final question is lovingly borrowed from the Tim Ferriss show. (laughs) You follow the Tim Ferriss experiment, but I think it is a good one just to sort of help us really understand your mission, Kato Keith's mission. So if you were going to do a TED Talk, what would it be on? I know you do a lot of speaking anyway, but what would you talk on and why? Yeah, so some of the things we've touched on, I mean, I, I think that if I was to do a TED Talk, it would probably be about all of the assumptions that we make about ourselves and our careers and about permission and about who we are, a lot of which define us and confine us and lock us in and may or may not have any basis in reality. If I was to reach into my 15, 16-year-old self listening to a career counsellor telling me that the job I would one day have probably doesn't exist, I had no conception Mm. of what that meant at the time. And I had no idea when I started my arts degree at Melbourne Uni, which I dropped out of after a semester, that I would come to define my career by innovation and helping corporations to grow and to dance and that I would be able to use my unique skills to about people and bringing people with me in order to start movements within corporations that happen to be in the innovation space. Mm. So I think a lot of what I had been told throughout my career, even when I started it was in Cisco, was about needing a lot of permission and what I should and shouldn't be doing and, you know, what defines a career and what makes it okay and what your or relationships with your leadership should look like. And I think a lot of that was, I was I've was i come to find I was mistaken about. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, having, having come to the Valley four years ago, I've stepped into a world that defines itself very differently and has a whole different set of assumptions and rules that it plays by. And I think that has made me aware of, you know, it's like taking the blue pill and realising that a lot of the things that seem solid and hard about how we limit ourselves may or may not be true. So, yeah. So, yeah. And oh, it sounds like you've blasted those assumptions apart from <laughs> what you've done. Well, yeah. And, look, I mean, I, um, I, I, I hope that one day I'll be able to bring that, those learnings home and, mm. and I ideally hope to be able to return to Australia before long, need to find the right opportunity to bring me back. But... Yeah, there's there's nothing that goes on here that we wouldn't be amazingly successful of doing our own way with our mm. own flavour back home yeah. in the Australian market. And where there are real barriers, like places like a, a lack of risk capital and seed, seed stage capital and those sorts of pieces in the Australian marketplace, mm. we can overcome those by getting money over here where they're still starved for ideas yeah. and really cash cash rich opportunity pool. Yeah. So there are ways that we can get the best out of both worlds in order to catalyze the Australian market in the 
Yeah, well, please do come back because we need you. (laughs) (laughs) And I I really love that you have just at that closing comment and, you know, what you would talk about as a TED Talk is so personal. And I think it's so many people that I just speak to in this field driven by that similar passion. It's not about necessarily the technology, like the technology is an, an enabler when it comes to innovation or even necessarily design but it is about genuinely making things better and feeling like you're driven by a much higher purpose I think and something that's definitely propelled you forward so well done congratulations on chill and on the work at Cisco I think it's really amazing and I'm absolutely confident that um, our listeners are going to have so much to learn so um, we will link that HBR article and also there's a Vimeo video, I think, online as well, isn't there, that gives a bit of insight into, yeah. into what happens. It's just the behind you, like, the scenes. Yeah, and the energy that's involved as well. So we'll we'll link both of those to the transcript of this interview and people can grab those. So thanks again, Kate. So amazing. My pleasure, talk. Fiona. And, um, Lovely to hang out with yeah. you and nice really to connect with your uh, your listeners. And, uh, yeah, by all means, um, I'm always happy to make myself available. I'm on LinkedIn and I'm on Twitter at Kate C. O'Keefe for those who are looking to follow what happens to an an intrepid Australian over here in the Valley. (laughs) Yes. We'll add those details as well, both your handle and your LinkedIn. Okay, thanks again, Kate, and we'll talk soon. Thanks, Deanna. Bye. Bye.